Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 149, and today's guest is Keith Frankel, co-founder and CEO of Parlor. Keith's professional journey has not been a linear one. It has been the exact opposite. It's been one that has taken lots of interesting twists and turns. From producing reality TV shows to running creative and design for software companies, he has never been afraid to stretch outside of his comfort zone. Keith and his co-founders are now focused on tackling a problem which surprisingly hasn't been solved. Parlor, which recently closed a round of funding led by Bain Capital, is an all-in-one discovery platform designed to help product teams validate the impact of all the features they're thinking about building so that you're actually building the stuff that your customers actually want. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Keith's background story in terms of how he got to Boston and ended up being the captain of a touring stepping dance squad and how that brought him to MTV why he made the transition to the software industry, and how he worked his way into a creative and design leadership role, including his experience at HubSpot, the aha moment that led the founding team at Parler to start the company, and the details on how they are solving this problem, the unconventional method that Parler used to raise funding, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, we just published the December edition of Career Forward. It has over 100 of the hottest jobs across the Boston tech scene. There are positions listed across all levels of experience and all functional areas like sales, product management, software engineering, and so much more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash careerforward to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Keith. Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, other Keith. I appreciate you having me. Great name, by the way. Uh, all right. So one of the fun things about doing these podcasts, I get to go into the weeds of a person's background, stalk them uh, a little bit, and it's okay that I get to do that. It's not creepy. And uh, I get to really discover things that I never would have found out otherwise. And uh, I definitely found that out about you. There's so many interesting paths and turns throughout your career and your personal life. It just seems like you were the type of person that always was never afraid to just kind of just try something new or go for it, kind of doing the unexpected stuff that maybe other people wouldn't do. And it seems like that's really, really worked out in your favor. So talk about that whole mentality. I would say it worked out in my favor, but I would not say it's who I was inherently as a kid. As it, so I'm from a small farm town in Alabama called Athens, uh, so small nobody knows about it. So I claimed the next closest big city. Uh, it's essentially a small town in North Alabama um, but as a kid, I was a creature of habit, like was completely averse to change. And so it was not inherently in my makeup or my DNA to be willing to try a bunch of different things, uh, jump out of my comfort zone and really pursue things that I was bad at. I would only, I was really in my lane and got very anxious and uncomfortable doing something outside of sort of my typical day to day. Um, but the thing that sort of forced that out of me, uh, I was first generation Southern. So my family was not originally from the South. My dad was from the Bronx in New York. Uh, my mom was from a small town in New Mexico called Carlsbad. And essentially what that meant is as a, as a child, the home in which I was raised, the mentality of that home was completely different than the environment right outside my door. Uh, and so I always felt like an other in the South, even though... You know, the South is very much, you know, what church do you go to? Who's your family? And because my dad was a doctor, my mom was a school teacher, I was totally welcome in that environment. But, you know, I was, I never felt comfortable. I mean, I was the Jewish family in North Alabama, not a Jewish family. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, what that meant for me as a kid is I knew very young that as soon as I could leave the South, I was going to leave the South. So when I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to leave and go elsewhere. And I was the only one from my graduating class to leave the South for college. Uh, and I uh, went to uh, New Haven. I did a first semester at Yale and then ended up transferring and finished up my undergraduate education at Tufts, which is how I made it to Boston. But that process of leaving Alabama and going to the Northeast was what basically completely broke that log jam of rigidity that I had always had internally. And it started this process of, oh, wow, there's so much more out there than just, you know, my small, you know, number one cotton producing county in Alabama lifestyle. And so that's the thing that kicked it all off. And it has since been, you know, I would say sort of the unifying factor of my life is that, you know, for years, I would say, I think you should change jobs every two years and change cities every four, mm. because that has been what I've done. And it's, it's been super successful for me personally, but also professionally. So 
yeah, it's not always like this, totally different. Yeah, because it's, it's not a linear path of what you've done. It's, uh, you know, you talked, you know, you went to Yale studying pre-med. So your dad right. was a doctor. You just talked about that. So I assume that's how. Yeah. So dad's a doctor. Uh, so from the time I was five, I was told I was also going to be a doctor. So I went to school uh, pre-med. I went to Yale. Um, you know, if you ask me today why I wanted to go to Yale, there were two reasons. Uh, one, at the time, it was the hardest school to get into. And two, it reminded me of Hogwarts out of Harry Potter. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I could make this happen. And so I wanted to do that literally just for those two reasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, so made it to Yale, uh, ended up transferring to Tufts just because I really was not a fan of New Haven, uh, started my, uh, continued my undergrad at Tufts, and I was studying pre-med, I think preparing for a bio or chem midterm, and just had this sudden feeling like, this is miserable, I don't want to do this work, I hate this. And so I called my, my dad, the surgeon, you know, uh, for, you know, used to be stationed at West Point in the military, sort of, you know, hardline guy. Mm -hmm. and I said, dad, the, uh, the worst thing that can happen has happened. And he goes, you got somebody pregnant. I was like, <laughs> no, no, not, not that. Oh, he's like, okay, then what's the worst thing that could happen? And I said, well, I've decided to no longer pursue medicine. And he said, okay, what are you going to do instead? Like, what's the other plan? I said, well, uh, I think I'm going to become a professional philosopher because I was taking philosophy classes at the time and loving it. Right. And he was quiet for like 10 seconds, which is an eternity when you're on the phone with your parent. And he said, yeah. uh, well, uh, enjoy lifelong unemployment. And he hung up. <laughs> and that was it. And that's how the whole thing started. So, yeah, uh, fortunately, it, it worked out in the end, but it didn't look so promising up front. That is too funny. So the whole philosophy piece also was a key part of how you've developed personally and professionally too. So uh, talk, I guess, talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, kind of like you had this point where you stepped way out of your comfort zone and got into a form of dancing called stepping. Yeah. So to this day, I say the most important skills that I have is what I learned from philosophy. Right. So, you know, not becoming a professional philosopher, you know, that's what I thought I was going to do. I was uh, producing some small, you know, um, academic papers that were getting published. Nobody was reading them. But, you know, what was the path? I was going to write some books. No one read. Teach, a, right. you know, some uh, liberal arts class philosophy 101. Like that was going to be the path. Mm -hmm. um, but the work itself, like the practice of sitting in a philosophy class, reading the work, writing the papers, uh, is to this day, it has led to the skill set that I think has made me, has given me my most differentiating value in the market as, a, as an employee at tech companies. Um, so, you know, the thing about, the thing they teach you in any good philosophy class on day one is that the basic unit of philosophy is argumentation. And that's not meant to be a negative thing. Like that is how we, uh, that is how we progress our ideas and our viewpoints around the world. That's how we poke holes uh, in the ideas that are not defensible. It's like the way we move forward in philosophy is this idea of argumentation. And if you compare that to like, think about groupthink, the number one form of groupthink adopted in, in, in across the world is brainstorming, right? This idea that we get in a room with a bunch of people, it's a safe space and we throw out a bunch of ideas uh, and it's all about quantity and that will lead to quality. We just get the ideas out and everyone feels comfortable. But it's really fascinating. Like, uh, brainstorming was invented by, uh, you know, the 1950s era uh, uh, Madison Ave uh, creative agency execs, like the Mad Men era. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and Ogilvy from BBDO is the person who invented it. And he said this phrase, get in a room and have a brainstorm in like chapter 30 something of a book he wrote. And that has taken off. And people love it because it's like, let's get in a room. Let's have a bunch of ideas. It's a safe space. So it's just a really nice way to have people work together. But, you know, 80 years of scientific research have shown that brainstorming and the way it's like traditionally um, frameworked is not effective. It doesn't produce more ideas and it doesn't produce more effective or better ideas. Mm -hmm. So if you look at other forms of groupthink, the other probably most popular one is the Socratic method, right? It's used in every, uh, it's every law school on the planet. It's used in every philosophy program. It's used in every courtroom. Like the Socratic method is the primary method that you'll see in these 
um, upper education uh, classrooms about how groupthink is done. And it's all about presenting, you know, presenting a question, answering the idea, challenging that answer, adjusting it to, or improving it in order to defend against the, uh, the argument against it, so on and so forth. It's this really aggressive but iterative style. Um, and if you look at, that's been used for 2,000 years, you know, since the Greeks. Uh, and if you look at it, it's highly successful. It passes every research study ever done on it in terms of producing better ideas. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as someone who comes from that background, coming into an environment in which, you know, many of these tech companies, how many times have you sat in a room uh, and someone, are you're throwing out ideas and someone goes, huh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, who else has an idea? My, that never flies in the Socratic method. In the Socratic yeah. method, it's boom, nope, shut that down. And what that means is that the best ideas are the ones that surface to the top, or we immediately find the flaws in our ideas because we're constantly challenging it as part of the culture. And so to me, that's what philosophy taught, is that sort of um, you know, unfettered approach to dissent being super constructive. It's non-personal, it's, uh, it's not negative inherently, it's inherently positive. And so that to me is the best skill set I've brought forward. I, you know, at Parler, a company I'm CEO of, like one of our virtues is dissent is constructive. Mm -hmm. These are like, we get in a room and we have really difficult conversations, but those conversations never feel personal right. because we all understand it's part of the culture. We're trying to improve the deliverable at the end. And so, yeah, that's essentially the background of, of the philosophy thing and why I think it's so important for me personally. Mm -hmm. Now talk about that kind of next phase where the, the stepping piece, which ended up being pretty amazing what you, what you accomplished there for someone who was not set out to, to dance. <laughs> for someone who's white. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The white Jewish kid from Alabama. Yeah. Not, I wouldn't say dancing's in my blood. Uh, so I mentioned I, for anybody who doesn't know, stepping uh, you'll, is, some people call it step dancing, but it's typically referred to stepping. Um, it's a type of, I would call it performance art uh, that's really popular in uh, Southern African-American Greek um, organizations like fraternities and sororities. Um, and it's basically, if anyone has seen the Broadway show Stomp, it's like Stomp without props. So uh, it's, uh, it looks like a dance, but it's coordinated movements of a team and all the music and noise is made with the body, claps, stomps, whatever it might be, uh, screaming, so on and so forth. So growing up in Alabama, I was familiar with this because it's big in the South. Um, and I was near, you know, uh, University of Alabama, University of Auburn, they obviously have large African-American communities there. And so there's a large African-American Greek community. Um, so when I, I went to Yale and when I transferred to Tufts, I was put on camp in an on-campus apartment uh, with five other guys. Uh, they were all black guys and they happened to be part of this all-male step team at Tufts called Blackout. Uh, and I, you know, I'd never been this close to it, but you know, you live with these guys and so you get really close and every night they'd come home, we'd be making food, we'd be watching TV, doing homework, and they'd be stepping in the living room. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, you, you hang out long enough. You have a, a few beers with a, with a group of guys. You start saying, all right, teach me this. I, I can do this. Yeah. So they started teaching me, you know, small things in the apartment. And then eventually they were like, you got to come come out and do this thing. Uh, what's you, unique about stepping is it doesn't have groove in the way you typically think about um, about dance, right? Mm -hmm. It's more like uh, coordinated movements. So most of the people that do it are actually former athletes. They're not like ballet dancers or contemporary dancers or anything. Mm -hmm. So I was a former athlete in high school, so I picked it up pretty quickly. So they were trying to convince me to come out and do this thing. I was like, absolutely not. I am never going to get on stage and perform this. And then fast forward six months later, I'm the captain of this all male, mostly you know, non-white step team called Blackout. <laughs> um, you know, I did that for a few years, sort of at the collegiate level while I was doing philosophy. I was doing a combined bachelor's and master's. And then um, we eventually took it uh, to a professional level, which essentially means uh, we would travel and tour and we get paid to perform and paid to teach. Um, and eventually uh, I was uh, asked to be on an episode of an MTV reality TV show called Made. 
uh, and they basically had a girl who wanted to learn to dance and they were bringing in coaches to teach her to dance. Mm -hmm. And one of the specialties they wanted to teach her was step. Um, so I, uh, ended up being, uh, you know, uh, living in Connecticut for six weeks while we filmed this MTV show, uh, for the show made. And you end up getting really close with everyone because everyone who works on the show is super young. Wait, and for so this I, performance, were you, you were like the on-air talent, like teaching? On-air talent teaching this kid to this. So there's an episode that I could watch of this. I'm sure it's somewhere. Yeah. yeah guys you know, of YouTube somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like you and I, guys, our age, Made was, Made was more popular. And I, I doubt most people even know what it is, but Made yeah. was the longest running MTV shows. It went like 20 seasons or something really long. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was on location filming the show, teaching this girl to step. And um, you get really close with the people working on it because everybody working at MTV is young. You know, it's, you know, uh, recent college graduates, maybe the oldest people are, are young 30s, you know, producing the show. And so after, you know, four to six weeks of hanging out, um, I started saying, hey, you guys should, you guys should hire me at MTV. You know, just joking. As a kid from Alabama, there's nothing bigger than MTV, TRL, like you, you and I are aware of this yeah i was you know first generation mtv i watched a lot of videos as it, like, right. anywhere if there was one career like if i had to change things i'd probably would have just escaped to new york and figured out how to intern for mtv and somehow do what you did that's right it's exactly right so we ended up um so eventually you know like yeah they're like yeah, yeah. i was like no seriously you should hire me so on and so forth Conversations never went far, and then uh, at, once we wrapped up uh, shooting of that, went back to normal lives, um, I sent my resume to uh, one of the producers working on the show, and he looked at it, and he's like, oh, you have a, you're like, you have a, a good educational background, like you could do this work. Right. Uh, you're a good writer, because I was doing philosophy, that's like the best skill, the main skill set that you developed there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, he was eventually like, hey, I'm going to set up an interview if you want to come interview. So I ended up getting a call to come interview on a Friday. Keep in mind, I'm still part of this philosophy program. Um, I drive to New York. I interview on Friday. I leave the building in Times Square, the giant building where TRL was. And 10 feet out of the door, I get a call saying, hey, we, we want to hire you to uh, become a production assistant on the casting side to cast for these reality television shows. Mm -hmm. uh, we need you to start on Monday. <laughs> and that was it. So I went back uh, 10 minutes later, you know, I had a job. I went back, I left the philosophy program at Tufts. I already had my bachelor's and I moved to New York and started working on reality TV shows for the next three ish or so years uh, at, MT at MTV. So what did that experience teach you? Like the, uh, the casting, then you moved over to the actual like, being a producer of a whole episode, right? Um, yeah, so it started when they brought me in. Uh, I was first uh, put on the first season of 16 and Pregnant very briefly uh, <laughs> and did not want to work there. And it ended up that they weren't sure um, where that show was going to go and they had needs on this other show. So I got transferred to Made, the same show I had been on, mm -hmm. uh, to work in casting. And my job was casting these coaches. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with Made, it's basically the show where we would it's a reality show. We would take these, the sort of down and out, a loner high school kid, maybe the kid that would sit at, uh, alone at lunch, didn't have a great, you know, friend group or great view of their high school experience. And this is the sort of kid that really felt like if I could just achieve something in my high school years that's notable, it would change how I feel about my experience. So for example, if I could make the basketball team or if I could become prom queen. And so we would send in Michael Jordan to teach this kid to play basketball for six weeks. And at the end, there'd be a tryout or the first game or something. That's yeah, basically yeah. the show. So my job was casting these coaches. Um, and, you know, you come out of school and you think, especially if you come out of one of these private, private liberal arts schools, you know, a top 30 school in the country, you're really full on yourself, like most of us are, and pretty much realized immediately that I was not special. Like I wasn't worth shit. No, but like no one expected me to have any skills. I had no skill set that was actually transferable to a job and came in with all this ego and was immediately knocked down to snuff. <laughs> like, no, you go get coffee. And right. so I was a college graduate, you know, at Tufts and was a really good student, considered myself pretty bright. I was publishing these philosophy papers and no one cared. It's like, go get us coffee. Um, <laughs> The other thing that was really shocking to me is just how hard everybody worked. Mm -hmm. So 
there was this environment in which, you know, you hear this a lot about how much people work in tech. It's nothing compared to the hours that my coworkers were putting in at MTV. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Like people would sleep under their desks. Um, they were pulling the late night oil. They were burning the late night oil. They worked their main job. And because everyone's jockeying for a limited number of positions to work up in the production or development sort of, you know, hierarchy, they would volunteer non-paying jobs still within the same company and not get paid for it. So they'd go sit in the edit room and help the editors and not get paid for it. Or they'd go on location on the weekends and drive the production crew around uh, and not get paid for it. Like the amount of work people put in to make this work is it's, I've never, I still to this day, I've never worked as hard as I have at that time in my life. Um, the third thing that really um, sort of was the realization for me was just how fearful all of my coworkers were to ask for promotions, raises, things they needed to progress in their own careers. So I didn't know any better. I was just a kid from the South. Like I just didn't know any better. So anytime the MTV staff would ask me, my managers or, you know, the show producer or whatever it would be, ask me to do something that, that I didn't see on my job description, <laughs> I would ask uh, for a raise. Right. <laughs> Literally, it was like, go do something small, go do something small. And if it, I would read my job description, that's not on there. And then I would go ask for a raise. I was like, this sounds like a promotion. I'm being being given more responsibility. Um, And I did not realize until much later that uh, most of the people I worked with never asked for a raise for the majority of their time working at MTV. Mm -hmm. So I came in much more junior than a a lot of folks I worked with. Many of them, in fact, most of them had came from some film school like NYU or something like that. Um, And they, uh, for three years, they never asked for a raise or a promotion. They were making the same thing. And in a year there, I was making much more than them because I didn't know any better. Every, every time they asked me to do something, I asked for a raise and I did not get all of them, but I got half of them. Mm-hmm. And I asked for eight raises in two years or two and a half years. <laughs> I just did not know any better. And so I got four raises in two and a half years. So I progressed really quickly up the ranks because I was at the time naive enough to ask for what I needed to be incentivized to continue working and stay there. And they said, yeah. And they, and they said no sometimes. And I realized I'm in the exact same position I was five minutes before I asked. The no doesn't hurt me at all. They didn't say, no, you're fired. They said, no, we just gave you a raise. No, that should just be part of what you work. Like, sure, I bet they were annoyed about having to say no, but no one ever let me go. And I was in the exact same position I was 10 minutes before I asked. And in fact, I was in a better position because I had the available information. I'm not more worth more money to them right now than I am right now, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, it was this really, and that has sort of set the tone for my personal sort of career advancement. I'm going to force somebody tell me no to my face. Like right. I'm not going to allow you to avoid having to give me a direct answer simply because I'm too fearful or whatever it is to ask for what it is I want or what I need. So it was just this really interesting environment that had a very particular culture, uh, really crazy work ethic. And that has, it's given me such an interesting background to move into tech and have that very different sort of perspective on the workforce because it's such a unique place to work. So what was that transition at that point to say, hey, I'm fascinated by this whole tech industry to make, you know, the move away from, you know, TV production? Yeah, there is, it's sort of multifaceted. So I was there. Um, I had worked a bunch of different jobs at MTV. I had done casting for a, an entire season of Made of Coaches. Uh, I saw all the editors actually editing the footage and thought that was fascinating and convinced MTV to pay for me to go become an Apple certified Final Cut Pro editor. So then I was editing like the casting packages, nothing that actually went on television, but all the things that you pitch internally to try and get someone, um, uh, to try and uh, get some uh, 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 talent greenlit to be on the show, like a coach or a, a kid or something like that. And then um, I'd worked in actually producing some episodes, um, but there was essentially what happens is uh, every show is different, but at Made you would work on a show for about 16, an episode like 16 weeks. The casting, the pre-production, the actual production of filming it with the student for four to six weeks, and then all the post-production of editing it and getting it prepared to go live, and then it goes live. So you get really invested and connected to 
the people that are on the show, if you know, if you're not a sociopath uh, or you care about it, you can get really deeply connected. And so there was a there was a, a, a young girl at a high school that I really wanted to work with. I thought she had had a really rough life with parents' illnesses and sickness. And she had the most chipper, chipper attitude that you'd ever seen. Just a great girl. But internally, she was struggling with a lot based off sort of, you know, her family's lot in life at that time. And I just was, had convinced myself that we could do something really good for this person's life. Like she would be telling this story forever. And mm -hmm. so you, you know, you talk to this girl, you interview her, you send out a team to film with her for a short amount of time to make the sort of uh, package that you'll use to pitch her to get an episode for her. And then you sit in this big boardroom after you have that package. That package is typically around four minutes. It's like mm -hmm. an interview with her, a short story of her. Um, and you play it in front of the boardroom of all the different producers and casting producers, and she's either greenlit, they say, yep, let's do it, we'll make a show with her, or no, or I need to see more, let's go figure this out, whatever it is. So we put her, um, we, it was her turn, my turn to play her package to this room, and there's something called the first frame test, at, um, at least in the environment where we work, but I think it's pretty pretty standard across uh, production. So the first frame test essentially refers to that initial thumbnail that you see before you press play on a video. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the first frame test is basically uh, in casting of these of this on-air talent, we pretty much know 95% of the time if that person's gonna be cast based off the first frame test. Mm -hmm. It's something we like, it's just a gut instinct and people, that's how they make decisions. It's rare that you're convinced otherwise. It absolutely happens. It's probably not 95%, but it's the vast majority of time, you know, if you're green lighting uh, on air talent based off that initial thumbnail. So sit down, I tell this girl's story. I'm super psyched. We press uh, play. Uh, it plays maybe 15 seconds. And then the executive producer says, um, uh, okay, you can pause it. And he pauses it, he goes, uh, I just think she's too overweight. It's not going to be, it's not going to be great television. Oh man. The next one, they move on to the next one, just like that. The next girl is this, you know, very attractive young blonde girl who lives in California. She's five foot eight. She's super mm -hmm. popular. Both her parents are physicians. They live in a giant home mm -hmm. and uh, she wants to become a surfer. So people will take her more seriously mm -hmm. and they, they watch all four minutes of her. And at the conclusion of it, say, uh, you know, young, uh, she's attractive, super personable. That's going to be a fun episode. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. And I had the worst feeling about that experience. And yeah. I felt just super morally bankrupt about the whole thing. And so at the end of my next episode, I knew I wanted to be out. And that was sort of the start of that. Um, I was burned out. It's an environment of fear. You know, everyone's vying for a limited number of jobs. And so when uh, eventually my episode ended, I was like, I got to find something else to do. And uh, tech, I was always amazed by tech because of this idea that someone is actually making a thing that you are interacting with on a daily basis. Like someone, is, you've, someone has made a thing that I spend a lot of time in in my natural life. The problem at MTV that I always felt just personally was there's no conclusion. There's like no payoff. So you'd spend 16 weeks making an episode. That episode would go live on television, but you don't ever watch somebody watch it. You don't, you get a Nielsen rating, a one point something. How many people viewed it? There was no like, this is, you know, earlier Twitter. Like there's not, you're not going on Twitter and seeing all the conversation. There's, there's no forum to get like that, that closure of the episode. Mm -hmm. And so you put all this energy in and then you don't really get much out of it at the end, at least for me, that's how I felt. So the fact that I could in tech, you would make something and watch people use it and then integrate it in there every, that blew my mind. And so when I started, when I left MTV, I was like, I need to start, a, I, I need to get a job. I was living off of unemployment, you know, in New York, which doesn't go very far. I was like, I need a job and started applying to tech companies and didn't know what the hell someone would hire me for. Uh, and so I started applying to social media marketing jobs and because I figured I have a Facebook account, how hard can this be? Right. <laughs> and uh, eventually got, uh, started getting job offers and got a job offer at a tech company, uh, which basically built language learning software for major US government and defense agencies. 
Um, uh, U.S. Department of Defense was one of their customers. And uh, they flew me out to the middle of New Hampshire and met with me. And they said, we don't know what you're going to do, but we know we need someone young and smart and hardworking to come in here and like disrupt some of this. And so we'd like to bring you out here. And they offered me an amount of money that I never even thought was possible. Like just, it wasn't a lot of money. Right. I paid basically nothing at MTV. And so um, I ended up taking the job and that's literally how my tech career happened. I just was suddenly at a tech company in New Hampshire and uh, was working. And so that's how the transition happened. And how'd you end up at, at HubSpot as head of creative and design? Yeah. So when I came into to the, the language learning company, um, the language learning software company, I was just doing basic marketing work. I was doing some content marketing, writing blogs. I would write a press release, you know, little thing, a one sheet, you know, they were just having me, my writing ability at play. And then about three months in, I encountered the UX team, the UX design team and had never heard of this term before, did not know what that was, and was completely taken aback by what their job was. Right. Like it not really dawned on me that a human designed all of the things in the products or apps I used. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm seeing for the first time people whose job is this on a day-to-day -day basis and was just amazed by it. And then about three months after that, I became obsessed with it. I read everything I could read. I was studying it on my own time. Government work is really slow. This is around the time uh, or just before um, the government shut down under Obama. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, I, I'm obsessed with this. So I spent all my free time. There's a lot of downtime teaching myself this work. About three months later, the, um, the head of that design team left and went to HubSpot. And um, so there was this vacancy. And so I went to the COO, this guy, Chuck, who's just the greatest guy. And I said, Chuck, I want to manage that team. Like, let me manage that team. And he like laughed. He's like, you don't have any background in this. You didn't even know what this was called three months ago. Like, no, you, I'm not going to let you do that. I said, I know, but I'll be the best manager that team has ever had. We will, you know, increase the amount we produce. It'll be of a higher quality. We'll work well with other teams. You know, we'll be a service, uh, a service team as well as sort of, uh, you know, we'll be more than a cost center, basically. Um, and it was just like, I promise you, I'll be the best manager this team ever saw. And he jokingly said, well, if you can convince uh, the art director, a guy named John, to let you manage him, I'll, I'll okay it. So I walked over to John and pitched John on this idea. Let me do this. And John to this day is one of the best three or four designers, UX designers I've ever worked with and uh, incredibly talented. And I pitched him on this idea and he basically said, listen, if you promise to never let make me sit in a meeting again, I will happily go tell Chuck, you can be my manager. And I was like, done. And he goes, all right, cool. And he walked into the COO's office and, and said he wanted me to be, their manager. And that is, that's how it happened. So all of a sudden I am managing a UX design team. That's, you know, 25 people across four different uh, offices, uh, four different countries <laughs> and um, you know, learning. So ba I basically managed my mentors for three years or something. And that ended up uh, by the time that was over, I had a really strong skill set. We had a really strong portfolio of work. And then HubSpot was looking to bring in someone to uh, basically be the creative director, run the show over there. And um, the, the design leader who had left the language learning software company to go to HubSpot basically passed along my resume. And we had heard of each other, but didn't know each other. And that got me into HubSpot. And they were basically like, okay, you've got this film production background. We have a big video team. You've got this UX design management. We have a, a design team. Uh, but we need to bring, and you've managed this big team across all these different countries. We have this dispersed, decentralized creative team, and we need to bring them all under one umbrella. And that was it. And so I got this job and was poached to come join HubSpot. Didn't know the first thing about it. I had no idea it was this special thing on this, you know, upward trajectory. And that's, yeah, that's how it happened. It's, it's a yeah, wild story. Yeah. So you're unique, uniquely qualified for that, uh, that role for HubSpot, which is cool. And then that was as they were, you know, in that rapid growth phase to an, to a IPO. 
That's right. Yeah, it was like two and a half years out before the IPO or so I joined. And they knew early on, like, this thing is going to happen at some point in this timeline. And this is what we need you to do to help us get ready for that. And so it was just a, a really exciting. It's like, oh, wow, this is a big deal, right. you know, especially to Boston. HubSpot is such a success for Boston. And it's so it's so pivotal for my career as well. I'm, you know, supremely thankful for the experience. But uh, yeah, yeah, they took a gamble on me. And it actually ended up working out really well. There were internal uh, people issues that I came into that because of sort of, you know, my uh, disposition and personality, I was, I was capable of maneuvering or navigating, you know, very, there was, you know, people that needed to be replaced to make room for me. And so there was this really tense time there, but because I'd come from you know, such a tense environment at MTV, obviously before that, this whole philosophy background, I mean, there's no more difficult place to be than a philosophy classroom at a high level when someone is grilling you. Uh, and so I was, I was sort of, it was the perfect skill set to walk into HubSpot, at least at that time with. So from there, you went to a startup called Firecracker. So what was Firecracker all about? Yeah, HubSpot went public. Um, and uh, I left the company when they filed their S1. Um, I was ready to move on. Um, I felt, you know, like I could make a lot more money on the open market. And it was hot and I would be sort of at my best, uh, at least on the market. And so I ended up um, doing consulting work just by myself for you know eight months or so working with a bunch of different startups and one of the ones that I was working with was this early stage ed tech startup called firecracker um, essentially what firecracker did it's actually a super interesting product it built um, an adaptive learning platform for US medical students that used machine learning to model something called an Ebbinghaus curve so have you ever heard the term um, oh it's got a steep learning curve Sure. Okay. Well, there's also something called a forgetting curve. Your brain is constantly degrading information it doesn't think are critical to hold on to. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, people um, forget where their keys are all the time. It's like, it's not, a, it's not survival necessary information for the brain. It just gets rid of the things. And with a large enough data set and a homogenous, homogenous enough uh, population, user population, you can actually use machine learning to model these forgetting curves to student populations. And so Firecracker basically built this product that used machine learning to model the rate of knowledge degradation for U.S. medical students so that we could produce, uh, present them with review material of material they were getting ready to forget that they had learned in their courses, but that they needed to pass their licensing board exams. And so um, I was doing some consulting work with them uh, and just thought what they were doing was super cool. I had worked at an ed tech company, the language learning software company, and um, the tech had just gotten so much better in that time. And I was like, this, I think I could do this really well. So they brought me in as chief product officer. Um, about a week after I joined the company, the CEO was basically like, hey, I'd like to try and achieve an exit without raising any outside capital. This was in completely bootstrapped. And I was like, oh my God, like, <laughs> you know, I wish you had told me this 10 days ago, you know, I might not have taken this job, but uh, interesting challenge. So I said, let's try it. So we, uh, yeah, so I was the chief product officer there. Uh, we bootstrapped that company over the next three years or so. Um, and it was uh, uh, roughly 30% of all U.S. Uh, medical schools uh, used us. And uh, that was acquired uh, early last year by an international publishing company called Walters Kluwer. Um, so that basically was this incredible experience, met this great team that, I've basically, that work with me today at the new company. And um, yeah, it's just, you know, Really, I was really fortunate to come from HubSpot, which obviously had a great exit into Firecracker, where I played, you know, um, you know, a really valuable role at evolving that product experience to the point where someone wanted to acquire it, and then uh, that the acquisition proceeds gave me the ability to sort of stay heads down for the last few years working on building out Parlor, uh, which is what we're doing now. All right, perfect segue. So let's talk about Parlor. And so it was you and three other individuals from firecracker so it's that's right people that are part of the founding team that's exactly right yeah so there are four founders uh it's myself um jason who's our cto uh jonah who is um our uh head of design head of ux um and then louise who is a director of engineering we all worked at firecracker together 
Um, so the backstory is, you know, again, sort of one of these, um, it feels serendipitous almost. So when, when I was brought in, I mentioned that the, the CEO of Firecracker, really great guy, wanted to bootstrap Firecracker. Well, I'd never been a head of product at a company that didn't have huge cash reserves in the bank. And so what that meant for me is I just, as the head of product, is I could not just spend, spend sprint after sprint building features without knowing they'd have some material impact on the business. Mm-hmm. And so what I figured I would do is I'd just go buy a software product to allow us to do this. There must be some third-party tool that can help me do this. Mm-hmm. And so I looked out into the market and was stunned to realize there just wasn't anything there. There were a million analytics tools that let people like me spy on how users are using features I've already spent all the time and money building. I think it's right? backwards. That's, it's ridiculous. And then there are a million customer support tools that allow me to triage all the random inbound complaints from users. And our, we build a support team and they say, great, thank you so much for letting us know. We'll tell our engineering team. There was nothing designed to do what we were trying to do, which we sort of referred to as, you know, early stage concept validation. How do I validate the impact of all the things we're thinking of working on before we write a single line of code? Because we didn't have the cash reserves to do that. We were bootstrapped. So we decided just to build something at Firecracker and it was all experimentation. And our first solution that actually worked uh, ended up being just this patchwork mess of third party tools. So we took a live chat tool called Intercom, very popular, great tool. And we set up these automated workflows in Intercom so that whenever a user landed on a screen inside of the Firecracker product in which we were thinking of making an update or making a change or um, adding new features, they would receive an in-app message with a description of what we were thinking of working on or building, a link to an Envision prototype where they could click around in it to see how it worked, and then a link to a survey monkey survey where we asked for their feedback. <laughs> so a terrible process, just a terrible process. But we were blown away by how effective it was. Mm-hmm. Not just in terms of sort of the obvious ones, like volume and quality of feedback were great. But the real aha moment came when we saw just how enthusiastic the end user population was about being asked to so deeply participate in our collaboration program is what we branded it. And when we looked at the, the sort of the, the big moment came when we ran NPS for the first time. And what we saw was that for the cohort of users that were actively participating in this very manual and time consuming process, their NPS scores were significantly higher than the rest of the national user population. And when we looked at who those users were, they were nobody special. They weren't power users, they weren't beta testers, they weren't early adopters, they weren't our highest paying customers. They were legitimately a random horizontal slice of the user population. Mm -hmm. And many of the free text responses that accompanied those NPS scores said things like, I feel like I'm a co-creator of Firecracker and I don't have to pay more to be so. Now, that's nuts when you put it into context. No one has ever complimented a survey in your life. (laughs) Exactly. It it doesn't happen. Right. And so we were like, there's something here. And so we kept refining this system. It was mostly a workflow with a process of collected different third party tools. Uh, And we continue to refine it to the point that, you know, we basically relied on it for everything we did on the product side. We started running these two to four week discovery sprints where we would seed our product with all these potential ideas. We'd build these customer advisory boards that would engage in all these different discovery efforts. Uh, And ultimately when Firecracker was acquired, my co-founders and I, we were like, there's something here. Like no one is doing this this way. What people are doing, people are building products based off one of four inputs. It's either uh, random inbound customer support tickets that a customer support says, thanks so much, we'll let you know. And they either put it in a product team bucket in their support tool or they export to Excel and people like me promise we look at it frequently. And we I just experienced that on on MailChimp, by the way. And they're like, please put that product recommendation on this tab that you might have to uh, make sure it's not blocked by your pop-up blocker. And I'm just like, oh, really? Exactly. It's craziness. Uh, Or people build software based off... uh, uh, anecdotal sales rep conversations. Sales rep runs over and says, we don't build this, we're not closing this deal. And we say, okay, we'll build it. Right. Uh, third, and this is for people like me, overconfident interpretation of analytics platforms. We <laughs> love to look at flows and graphs and say, I know exactly the user intent or preference or behavior that caused that blip. And I know exactly how we should respond to it. 
Or, and this is obviously, honestly, the most prevalent one is Hippo, highest paid person's opinion. <laughs> Every product team on the planet is building software based off one or a collection of those inputs. And we all sit down at the beginning of the year and we plan 12 months of product work. We call them roadmaps and they're incredibly important. And not one of those things has been validated. There are dozens of tools focused on roadmap management, but there's not one that does roadmap validation. And we're like, this is craziness. This is cra There is a better way to do this. And so we started, uh, we wrote the first line of code for Parler in late summer 2017. We were fortunate enough to have um, the acquisition proceeds from Firecracker that allowed us to be really patient about this. Like to do this right, it's a really large product uh, and we needed time in the lab to build this thing out. We had one great use case, which was Firecracker, and we had three years of learnings to help us do the MVP. Uh, we decided to run an equity crowdfunding campaign really early on. Okay, yeah, and this I want to talk about because this yeah. is very unconventional. Super, yeah, yeah, like I know this is a something that you could do, but I've never actually talked to someone that has actually gone through the process and done it. So talk yeah. about that. Every person I've talked to told me not to do this. Every okay. every person I talked to said, "Do not do this. It immediately makes you look JV." Okay, yeah, like desperate because you couldn't raise from institutional. Yeah. You have two eggs that you should be able to raise from angels or institutional VC easily, or right. um, no serious startups do equity crowdfunding campaigns, or uh, no VC is going to want to work with you when you have this many people on your cap table. I could tell you all the pushback. Sure, yeah, definitely the cap table part. Yeah, yeah, and my so essentially, if anyone's unfamiliar, there is a new form of fundraising, new er, in the last few years since Obama passed the Jobs Act. Uh, or the Jobs Act was passed under Obama, which basically allowed non-accredited investors to invest small amounts, highly regulated by the government, in early stage startups. That's essentially, there's all sorts of rules and limitations about how much someone can invest so that it's not predatory, or the amount a company can raise, so on and so forth. Uh, but it's essentially a Kickstarter for uh, startup investing. So instead of someone pre-buying your board game or whatever the Kickstarter you're running is, instead, they can give you a small amount of money. It could be as little as 10 bucks. It could be 100 bucks. You determine your minimum amount you're willing to take as the company. And in exchange for that, they get equity. Now, anybody can do this. It doesn't have to be the wealthy. And I just loved this idea. I just loved it. I, there was something about it that I liked the fact that it was new and unique. I really liked the fact that it felt like it was democratizing the funding experience for startups uh, in a way that I sort of felt like we wanted, we were trying to like democratize the experience for people who pay time and money on software by giving them the ability to inform the future direction of the software they spend time and money on. That's sort of what, how Parler is designed. Um, and I just love the idea that it allowed us to not have a boss that as a as an investor in the same way, an institutional investor in the same way you would if you went with a VC or you know really informed angels. So we decided to run this. Everybody told me not to do this, but in the end, I just kept saying, "Listen, we're either going to kill it or we're not. And if we are doing great as a company, VCs are going to want to participate in the future regardless of if we've got this thing. They're going to make it work. And if we're not killing it, it's just another reason for them to say no." Right. And so let's just do this and try it. And you know, some of my co-founders thought I was crazy, but they were willing to let me try it. So it, it ended up being just great. We raised $150,000, which at the time was, I think, the most successful B2B uh, SaaS raise. Uh, that led to 50K of sort of uh, private investment. So we raised a really small pre-seed round of 200K. And we got great terms for the company. And it basically gave us the patience to be able to build this thing uh, and bring in any additional resources we need. We were all living off of our acquisition proceeds, but then we had this nice nest egg that we could use for any other resources we need. And so we were really quietly building Parler for you know, uh, two years almost, um, getting it as robust as we could. There are very large players in our space. And so to do something unique and compelling was going to take time. And then just out of, we were not fundraising another round. And then out of the blue, we got this great email from our, our current investor. And uh, it basically said, if you're working on what I think you're working on, we want to be a part of this. 
And that started the next phase of growth, which I'm happy to jump into if it's interesting. Yeah, please continue because it's uh, very untraditional. It is very, yeah, very untraditional. So um, we were, again, I mentioned very patiently building uh, the parlor. Uh, we had a closed beta. We had some early paying customers using it. We were seeing, you know, a, you know, some really interesting early value, but we know exactly where we want this thing to go. We know it's how much time it's going to take to get there. And we end up, um, I end up, we, from time to time, I'd get an email from a VC. Like everyone knows how this goes. Uh, it could be an associate or a principal. Sometimes it's a partner and they're just like, Hey, you know, would love to chat if you're working on something, something like that. And I would just say, you know, we're not raising, we're not raising, we're not raising. Um, I just did not want to go through that process because it's so time consuming and I didn't feel like we had the sort of success metrics yet to make that an instant process. Like how do we make it as fast as possible? You know, I'm focused on building the product, not on, you know, fundraising right now. Right. But then I ended up getting an email uh, from a partner at Bain Capital Ventures. Totally out of the blue. I don't know them, have never met them. And the email was so refreshing that I was like, we've got to take this call. And it basically said, you know, Keith, uh, you don't know me. Um, I was a product uh, manager prior to becoming uh, an investor. Uh, if, you, if you're working on what I think you're working on, I, I want to be involved. Like, how can we make this happen? Can we get on a call? Mm -hmm. I just really liked, you know, Bank Capital Ventures doesn't need to chase after little old me. Like, right. I'm nothing special. And I just love the tone of it. And so I was like, hey, let's have a call. And so from that first call to a term sheet was about four weeks. Wow. They, they pursued us aggressively. They could not have been fairer or easier to work with. I felt like they understood us. They were our partners. And we got off the first phone call with them and looked at Jason, my CTO, and I looked at each other and said, there's something serendipitous here. This is not normal. And so, yeah, we ended up, um, they gave us a term sheet. Uh, I was so um, taken aback by how fair the terms were. I created no competition for the deal. I felt like I had found a great partner and that's what mattered to me. You know, a little boy from Alabama, the first person that gives me a warm handshake that I feel like I trust. I'm like, let's do it. And so, yeah, we raised a, a, a nice round from uh, a nice funding round that closed um, uh, late summer around, I think around August of this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was led by Bain Capital Ventures. But as a part of that, uh, we set aside a small amount of the round to allow um, uh, a small number of angels to participate. In particular, we wanted to bring in a bunch of West Coast product leaders if possible. We're building a product for product teams, for product leaders. Uh, and so to do that, I felt like it was really important that I had the perspective of these really experienced product leaders, especially as a first-time founder. Like I've been C-suite at companies, but this is my first time doing it from scratch as the CEO nonetheless. And so... Um, we, I was really worried we wouldn't get any angel investors involved. You know, Bain would back out because they're like, nobody wants to be a part of this. Um, but the best part of the whole thing ended up being who we brought in as angel investors. Um, so we ended up attracting, a, you know, a small group of some of the best product leaders on the planet. Um, you know, you, you know who it's CTO of Atlassian, VPs of product at Dropbox and Google and Uber and Uber. Uh, the head of product and co-founder of Facebook, Libra, a lot of other great names. It's just this incredible pool of people. And so um, we recently closed that. And now we're in this, you know, exciting growth phase. We have our first office in downtown Boston. We're no longer working from our living rooms and we're growing the team. And yeah, it's just a super exciting time. And Bain did not give a shit that we raised an equity crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's crazy. It, so it definitely is one of those products where like, I still can't believe it didn't already exist after all the tools and software, SaaS, everything, like analytics, all these products, like, uh, it's just was like, I, when I was digging deep into what you're doing, like before, when I you know heard more about it, I'm like, how does that not exist? That's right. It's, it's because the, like when you really dig into it, it's not that surprising, but anyone you ask on a surface level, everyone's like, how, wait, this has to exist. It's got it. It's like, no, it, it doesn't exist. There are things like it that smell like it, yeah. but the execution is what matters here. You know? So for anyone, you know, parlor, we describe as this all in one discovery platform. 
Uh, it's essentially the goal is to allow product leaders or product teams uh, to proactively engage their end users in what we call their discovery efforts. And so when we say discovery, it's like this catch-all term that encompasses um, all of the different efforts you might engage a user population with uh, in order to determine what matters most to them, what their needs are and what you need to build for them, and uh, whether you should build the things you're thinking about building, roadmap validation. So need discovery and roadmap validation. And the goal is to do it in such a way that you actually ingratiate your product team to the people that actually spend time and money building, uh, using your product. Namely, because they feel like they actually have a say in the future direction of where this product may go. So they feel deeply invested in it because they actually can, in some light way, control the destiny of the product by working really closely. So at a high level, we're trying to unite the people on both sides of the product, those building it and those using it around the improvement of that product. So when uh, that's essentially what the product is. Um, when you look at, it's, you know, it's really interesting when you ask any random person on the street, how many pieces of software do you use in your life? Think about all the ones you use for work email apps and chat apps and scheduling apps and every piece of software you use to do your job, all the ones you use to make your life easier, more convenient, Uber and Lyft and uh, every gig economy app you use. Uh, imagine all every website you use is a product. It's a digital product. Uh, think about all the apps you use to stay in touch with your friends, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and a lot of people are using products to meet new friends, Tinder, Bumble, you name it. The average American is using about 30 unique pieces of software every single month. Now, to people like you and I that work in this space, or at least around the tech space, that is a fraction of what we use every single month. Sure. Now, take a moment and think about the last time that someone who's actually capable and responsible for improving any one of those products you use got in touch with you and asked you for your feedback on something they were thinking about working on or changing. Mm -hmm. Not a marketing person, not a sales person trying to get you to upgrade, not a support person trying to get you to rate them on a scale of one to 10. Someone who is from the product team that can actually change your experience in a meaningful way. Can you recall it happening once? No, never. Never happened in my life either. It's never happened. And I do this for a living. I lead product teams for a living. I can give great free advice and no one's ever asked me. That's craziness. And so when you look at that, it's like, wait, how is that not the case? Well, because on one hand, you have a bunch of introverts who, say, who build software, design software, and they say, well, it's, you know, talking to users is scary and hard and painful. So I'm going to build analytics platforms that allow me to see trends at a higher level, which is actually more impactful. And that way I can hide behind my computer and not talk to anybody. And because those continue to not be that impactful, now you hear people making predictive analytics platforms, right? Because the analytics platform is not helping us not make shitty software. And then you have this whole other bucket of customer support where we're like, let's hire the cheapest resource we can, recent college graduates from liberal arts schools. Let's put them on a customer support team over in that office over there. And let's call them customer success or customer experience so they feel better about their role. And let's, that's a scalable resource because they're cheaper compared to our PMs or our designers or engineers or any of other things. So we feel like that's a scalable resource. So what happens? We set up a ticking system or a live chat system and everything a user wants to talk to us about, we send to them. But 40%, at least that's what it was at Firecracker, of every conversation that goes to them is about something they actually can't do anything about without triaging it to somebody else. And so you say, well, that is completely ridiculous. Why can't we directly connect people on both sides of these products. Why can't we unburden support by taking all non-product related conversations out of that live chat flow and instead putting it directly to the people whose job it is to make decisions to improve these people's experience. And the problem is there's so much, you know, sort of preset uh, thought about how this work should be done. There's so many teams 
planning 12 month roadmaps without talking to users. There's so many teams that already have a live chat tool. There's so many teams that are relying on just staring at an analytics platform drooling out the side of their mouth. <laughs> and so the, our challenge is how do you educate these people that there's a completely different approach to this? One that significantly de-risks your efforts by helping you validate the impact of the things you should work on before you ever work on them, but at the same time, deeply invest your user population into your product because they feel like they actually can talk to someone who can improve it. Your, just the nature of your feedback collection feels like a service to them that allows their voice to be heard more than just, they're invested beyond what their monthly or annual subscription cost is. So that's the whole idea behind Parler. There's a lot to do here. It's a huge problem to solve. Every product team that has a user needs a better solution to this. And our thing is gonna be all about education. Can we do what HubSpot did mm -hmm. and teach these product teams that there is a modern way to approach your user population beyond buying, you know, the marketing world, it was buying radio ads, television ads, cold calling, direct mailing. Pro pro products like HubSpot came in and totally disrupted that. There's a new way that people shop and buy. We think it's going to be the exact same way for this product side. How do we completely disrupt the way that teams are building software the old fashioned way where you have no respect for your users and don't think you hear this quote all the time. If I asked my users what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. That's, that's what's contributed to Henry Ford with the model T. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Because if you ask your users what they want, they, they don't know what to say, but if you prompt them with a better question that you can actually get really interesting conversations. And so, yeah, I know. We, we keep saying, how did we luck upon this, that this is here? But it is a huge problem to solve and figuring out how to solve it within the context of how teams currently approach this work. That's the challenge. Now, uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, you raised capital. So what's the, what's the current state of the business and growth plans ahead in terms of hiring? Yeah, like, listen, I would say, say we're still very, very much early stage. Uh, we are thrilled with the momentum very, very progressive and some large and some very noteworthy companies use Parler and get value out of it. And that's crazy exciting for us. Like, you know, not to say logos or names of any customer, but you know, the product teams that every other product team wants to be, they use Parler. Mm -hmm. And that's crazy. Like, you know, it's, for us, it's so exciting. Um, but for us, you know, we're in the stage where we, we've been building this thing with a small team, the four of us for long time. So now the team is uh, 12 full time. Um, and it's almost all product related. We have our first few marketing hires. We don't have any salespeople. I do every sales call because I learn so much from every one of these conversations with product leaders. It's completely invaluable. I wouldn't let anyone replace me in that process. Um, and you know, we're scaling the product and the main thing we're doing, there's not even a way to do a trial of the product. That's how like that's how small the team has been. Let's focus on core functionality. So essentially where we at today, we have this great amount of funding. It's allowing us to scale the team, to talk to more product organizations than ever, learn how more of these product teams approach this work. And as a team, the main thing we are doing is trying to lower the barrier of entry to the Parler platform. So can we have a free version that maybe early stage teams can use and make, get, get, take advantage of in order to find product market fit earlier? Do we have a, a lighter weight version of the product that's, you know, startups or scale ups can use? And then how do we continue building out value so that as a uh, team's roadmap gets more robust, as their user population grows, how can Parler grow with them to ensure that the conversations and feedback you get from your users are still really scalable and actionable? And so for us right now, the whole most team, most companies start with a very small feature and they try and get a bunch of people to use that for free, and then they figure out how to grow it, add value, and then monetize it later. We're this weird case where it's the exact opposite. We have a, an incredibly mature and robust product, and now we have to break it down to make access to that easier. So it's basically taking this core parlor platform and making it easier or more accessible to more product teams. So it's reverse engineering a little bit of the typical path. So outside of building parlor, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Not think about work. <laughs> uh, I've got, I've got a wife, uh, Laura and two, uh, two whippets. Uh, they're like uh, medium sized greyhounds. I got a brother and sister pair. So most of the time outside of work is spent with, uh, them trying not to think about uh, this job, but you know, being, being an entrepreneur is, um, 
the hardest thing is managing your own emotional state. It's by far the hardest thing. On a whim, like in a five minute period, you can have the highest high and the lowest low, depending on what email you got. Yep. And you know, <laughs> it's so important to try and find something that can snap you out of that. The hard thing about the entrepreneur is you're in this perpetual state of worry and concern, guilt, I could be doing more, stress, what do I not know, you know, uh, imposter syndrome. Yep. And so if you can actually, you know, find any outlet you can to escape that, it's, it's, it improves not just you, but your entire team, because they look at you as sort of the, you know, the pacemaker for how uh, we should be feeling about how the company is going. And so the best thing I ever did for my, for my company is buy uh, two dogs. It's the best thing I ever did for my company. My dogs don't care at all that I'm stressed or need to look at a computer screen or whatever. They're like, hey, it's time to go outside. I want to play. And so they are constantly this, you know, this uh, forcing function to get me to walk away from the computer and go actually enjoy real life. You know, and that's, I've now been doing parlor long enough that I no longer attach my, the value of my personal identity to the failure or success of parlor. Parlor is something that I think is going to be really successful. If it's not us, someone who's doing this work, it's going to be big because it's so important. However, if parlor fails, like I'll be okay. I'll still have my wife and my two dogs and I'll have our nice home and I'll do the next thing and it won't be the end of my life. And so we've gotten to this interesting point now where we've been doing this enough that we no longer wrap our identity up in the success or failure of it. And that is, has allowed me to enjoy the process of trying to be an entrepreneur and get a company off the ground much more than I did in the first year, a year and a half of it. So yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting trajectory. Very cool. Well, Keith, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the experiences that you've shared along the way and lessons learned, of course, and, and, and you know, best of luck with Parlor. Well, thank you so much, Keith. I appreciate you having me on and I apologize that you've had to listen to me uh, talk for the last hour, uh, but hopefully there was something interesting there. Lots of good stuff. So thanks for your time. Thanks, bud. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.